From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Very glad you could join us today for Open Line Thursday here on EWTN Radio. Uh, Well, normally it would be uh, Jack Williams at this time. He is away. I'm Tom Price. Glad to be joined by our Thursday host, Father Brian Mullady. How are you today, Padre? Oh, just fine, thank you. Glad to hear that. (laughs) Uh, Let me give you the phone numbers here, and that is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Now, if you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205 271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email, the address for that, openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. In the subject line, if you would, please put either Thursday or Father Milady or anything like that, just so that we can make sure that the right question goes to the right host. So today, Father, uh, as we're in the middle of uh, Advent, very appropriate to be talking about John the Baptist. Yes, we feature him, as you know, quite a lot in the liturgy because he has a great deal to do with uh, who Christ is. And he's the last of the prophets. According to the Holy Scriptures, he's even related to our Lord, you know, Elizabeth's son. Mm -hmm. And he acknowledges Christ according to one of the Gospels, even in the womb. So remember, uh, the verb is very vivid in the visitation where he says, Elizabeth says, the child in my womb leaped for joy. She means more than that. What she means is dances for joy, like David did before the Ark coming, and marries the Ark of the Covenant, and Christ is, of course, the Covenant. So the two children meet each other, you could say, first of all, in the womb. Later, John the Baptist has the duty of preparing people for the actual public manifestation of Christ. And in some of the Gospels, he just proclaims the Messiah's coming. Uh Although what he says... I remember when I took scripture, we were told that the whole of the scriptures could be reduced to these two points, um, repent and believe in the Mm. gospel. Because repentance is the negative uh, sin, but belief is the positive, giving of yourself to grace. And then it's also clear in the prologue according to St. John, and in John's own words, because remember they ask him, He's the one that's the comer should they look for another. And John basically says, look, I'm the one crying in the wilderness that the Messiah is coming Mm -hmm. immediately, soon. But I'm not he. And then, of course, he baptizes our Lord. And even though our Lord doesn't need baptism, 
him touching the water sanctifies them. And the uh, Holy Trinity recognizes Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. And then you also have John saying, Behold the Lamb of God, thus making not only an identification with Christ as the Messiah, but a reference to his sacrifice as the Holy Lamb of Sacrifice. And then when they keep trying to press him with the idea that he must be the Messiah, he says, no, 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 there's one coming after me. I'm not worthy to unloose his sandals. And then he says this beautiful phrase that he must increase, but I must decrease. I love that. Yes. And then, of course, we also know that he participates in the whole theme of the death of our Lord uh, from justice, from the authorities, because at some trivial dance to satisfy the uh, lascivious desires of a ruler, John the Baptist is beheaded. Mm. So he participates in martyrdom also. So we have all these things that come together in John the Baptist. As you know, we do celebrate a couple of his feasts, his birth and uh, his uh, death or his... Uh, martyrdom, mm-hmm. but they're all put together in Advent because they're all oriented toward the immediate coming of the Messiah. He's the immediate precursor. And you can see that by the fact that he also prepares himself for this by going into the desert. And uh, I know we talked about the locusts and wild honey. Yes. But I mean, the point is that he reduces himself to the simplest fare. Human beings do need to eat, but they don't need to eat lavish banquets mm-hmm. in order to prepare his soul through fasting and through simplicity for himself participating in the coming of the Messiah. So uh, it's interesting that everybody, many, many religions who don't believe in Christ have a, a theology, in a sense, of John the Baptist. You know, the Mormons have a place for John the Baptist. They think he's an angel. The Muslims have a place for John the Baptist. Benai Brith has a big place for John the Baptist. There are all these different religions and sects. Sects yes, yes. look to John the Baptist as the... Uh, central nature feature of our religion, mm. which he's not. He himself is very clear about that. It all centers on Christ. And, of course, in the Christmas Mass, we'll read the prologue according to St. John, where it says, there was a man sent from God. He, he was not the light, but he came to prepare for the light. And this is, of course, referring to John the Baptist, too. Some people believe he was a member of the Essene sect, Really? Yes, because they did practice fasting. They were very interested in the immediate coming of the Messiah. And they thought it was going to happen then. And they centered a lot of their reflections on the prophet Isaiah. I think some of these scholars um, are go overboard in their attempt to put John the Baptist in the center of our religion. Hmm. Because he himself, as again said, he wasn't 
everything is pointing to Christ. And as you said, the thing you love, that, that statement, always needs to be kept before our minds about he must increase, but I must decrease. So as we're repenting to believe in the gospel, as we're preparing ourselves, we have to listen to the cry of the Baptist. Uh, it's very much reflected in the Advent hymn. You know, on Jordan's bank, the Baptist cry announces that the Lord is nigh. Awake and hearken, for he brings glad tidings of the King of Kings. And then it talks about every Christian soul, breast, should be cleansed of sin to make a place for God within, which is a huge theme of the Baptists. Mm -hmm. So we're also told that no man born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. Now, he doesn't mean after the order of um, grace and dignity, like Mary and Jesus are obviously greater, and perhaps even St. Joseph. But he means in the sense that the gospel is going to be immediately proclaimed as being fulfilled by this figure who is the last and the greatest of the prophets. Well, St. John the Baptist, uh, pray for us. And that's certainly Amen. something that I find myself uh, saying, you know, that uh, I must decrease and, and he must increase uh, when I'm in my own prayer time. I, I do that uh, quite often. Good. And it shows, again, the reflection of the Baptist place in our religion that's quite um, deep. And, of course, he could have, as you know, a lot of people do this in politics where they are the precursor in a sense but they want to be the the main show. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they try to etch out the main show. Uh, no, that's yeah. not the way it is. And <laughs> it's not the way it is in Christianity. And it's not, it's not, and it's not the way it is in the Baptist relation to Christ. Well, we thank you, uh, Father, for unpacking uh, John the Baptist on this uh, Thursday afternoon edition of Open Line here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Lines are open for you right now if you have a question for Father Brian, and that number is 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. If you're listening outside of North America, you'll want to dial 1 and then 205 271-2985. Back in a flash with more Open Line Thursday. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's one 833 288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Those lines are open right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian Milady, 833-288-3986. You know what? You can rely on CNA, the Catholic News Agency, to cover the mission and activities of the Catholic Church, including social and political, moral and cultural issues from a perspective of faith. For the latest Catholic news, you can hit it 24-7. Visit catholicnewsagency.com. 
EWTN.com, CatholicNewsAgency.com. It's an online service from EWTN News. And now you can get timely news updates directly into your email inbox. Visit EWTN.com, click on the word subscribe. It'll give you a, a little menu there of things that you can subscribe to. If you choose Catholic News Agency or Catholic News, you'll start getting those emails almost instantaneously. Great idea. Visit EWTN.com. Click on subscribe. Lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian Mullady, 833-288-3986. Here's an email from Alex, Father, who says, If it's sacrilegious to try to empirically prove what the Eucharist is, well, then how can we know it's the body of Christ? If it's sacrilegious, well, I don't think it is sacrilegious. Okay. To prove it. Okay. You may not succeed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know what you mean by what are you put tests to it or something to the sacred host or burn it or I don't know something. Not sure, but I'm not sure either what it means. I guess using you know examining the accidents of the Eucharist. To, to to look for divinity, but uh, that doesn't work, does it? No, because the the accidents are merely suspended. You could say sure uh, over the being. I mean, uh, as Saint Thomas says, uh, faith alone reveals the sacred sign. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to believe it. Um, there's nothing wrong with inquiring into the Eucharist. But you can't submit it to physical degradation. Yeah. Or I'll put it in a test tube to try mm-hmm. to figure out if it's the body of Christ. Some people claimed that if you put the hope under host under a microscope after it was consecrated, you should be able to see the molecules of Jesus' body. And they didn't know that wasn't true in the Middle Ages because they had no microscopes. So therefore, we don't have to believe it. Well, I thought, no, no, no. Substance, substance there doesn't mean chemical molecular structure. That all remains the same. Those are all part of the accidents. Sure. Substance means what it is, what this thing is. And we know that in this beautiful kind of decision on God's part, which is a part of his wisdom, that every little particle becomes the whole Christ body, blood, soul, and divinity. Mm. If you took a normal body and you broke a piece off of it, you'd have two pieces of the body. But in the Eucharist, that isn't true. It's Christ's body incorrupt that remains in heaven. And when we break the host in half, we don't have two pieces of Christ. We have the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity under each part. And the same is true with every drop of the precious blood. So the idea is there aren't 10 million bodies of Christ that all exist around the world in different consecrated hosts. There's one body of Christ, soul, divinity, that exists in heaven, in the sacred liturgy of heaven, And that becomes present on earth in 10 million different places Mm -hmm. so that we ourselves may make that a share in our worship. And then the completing act of worship is receive communion 
And what was it the, some of the ancient fathers used to say? Like wax into wax. Mm, Christ's wow. divinity fuses with our humanity and transforms it. So wow. that we become um, more engraced, you could say. We obviously don't become God, but we certainly participate in God. Sure. Alex, that's what's meant. Okay. There you go. Alex, thanks so much uh, for your email. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning today with Stephen in Ann Arbor, listening on the great Ave Maria radio. Hey there, Stephen. A blessed Advent to you. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, first of all, thank you for taking my call. Uh, just a quick question. Um, Godparents, uh, if they are no longer uh, practicing the Catholic faith, what's the Church's teaching on that Do you? find new godparents? How does that whole process work if there is one? Okay. Well, first of all, you have to use your brain. A godparent is supposed to raise a person in the faith in the place of the parents. And if they don't believe anymore, the chances are they won't be raised in faith. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, my understanding is, and it could be faulty, that only one Catholic godparent is necessary now. The other one could be a Jew. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because godparents also have taken on in our culture a whole different aspect than just their relationship to baptism. But one godparent certainly should be a practicing Catholic because they have to guarantee that they'll help the children, the parents raise the children in the faith. Now, we know that's not always the case because they, they also look on it as, well, you know, I mean, uh, like the godfather, <laughs> 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 you know, which has almost no relation to religion whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. But uh, still, that's what the, the idea is supposed to be. Okay. Stephen, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833 833- 288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian Mullady on this Thursday afternoon, 833-288-3986. Tom is in Iowa listening on the great Iowa Catholic Radio. Hello, Tom. Blessed Advent to you. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, yeah. Thanks for uh, taking the call. Um, I was curious um, if you could kind of clarify your uh, when um, Christ compared John the Baptist to Elisha. Oh, yeah, the, the famous Elijah problem. Mm. Um, I think that has to do, uh, actually, you could look it up in Wikipedia. I, not that I form my theology on Wikipedia. I'm glad to hear that. No, but I did look it up this morning, um, what they had to say about John the Baptist. Uh-huh. And uh, they, the Elijah problem is a part of the whole thing. So let me see if I can briefly, it even has a paragraph here on it. Hmm. But these are various religions now. Uh-huh. There's a whole developed literature, both heretical and otherwise, <laughs> on John the Baptist, which I was uh, surprised to find out that isn't even Christian. Oh, my. So, yeah. Um, All sorts of things. Yeah, but uh, let's see if I can, prophecy of Isaiah, baptism, there we go. The Gospels vary in their depiction of John's relationship to Elijah. 
Matthew and Mark describe John's um, attire in a way reminiscent of the description of Eliah in 2 Kings 1.8, who also wore a garment of hair and a leather belt. In Matthew, Jesus explicitly teaches that John is Eliah, who was to come. Many Christian theologians have taken this to mean that John was Eliah's successor in the Gospel of John. John the Baptist explicitly denies being Eliah in the Annunciation narrative in Luke. An angel appears to Zechariah, John's father, and tells him that John will turn many hearts, you know, uh, the sons of Israel to mm-hmm. the Lord, mm-hmm. and he will go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. So um, that's about the best I can tell you. My my reaction would be to interpret it as the successor of Eliah, who was immediately preparing that what the prophets taught, and of course Eliah was supposed to be the greatest of the prophets uh, excepting John uh-huh. uh, was to teach love and to turn the hearts of fathers to their sons and mm. sons to their fathers. Okay. And so John the Baptist is actually implementing that. Okay. Tom, we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much for your call. Glad that you're listening on Iowa Catholic Radio, one of our very important EWTN uh, family members. It's uh, Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. A question here, an email, Father, from AJ. Is there a definitive Catholic teaching on feminism, and how can I best speak to feminists? Well, by feminism, you mean the radical feminism of the United States. I think so. I would say uh, there is a definitive teaching, and that is that um, it's not possible because the radical feminists, as you know, want have no sex really they they want to be have no sexual differentiation and this partially comes from the place of the mother and father in the family mm-hmm. you know the mother's position which is necessary for the children's maturity is in the primary years and is basically based on the heart Women, as you know, are able to sense when their children are in distress without having to have a go to a doctor. <laughs> yeah. And the father's position is the head of the household. Uh, I was just watching Fiddler on the Roof, and, you know, they have that song, Tradition. Tradition, yes. Yeah, who must know the way to raise a proper home, a quiet home, a kosher home? Who must know the family and run the home so Papa's free to read the holy book? <laughs> yes. And that's pretty much the traditional explanation of the relation from male to female. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with the ability to run corporations because a lot of women have been able to run businesses much better than oh, their husbands. Yes. It has to do with spiritual formation. Okay. And motherhood is essential to that. Uh, Edith Stein was very clear about that. Mm, yes. Yeah. Well, very good. And uh, thank you so much uh, for your question. Uh, and that's from AJ. And by the way, if you would like to send us an email for a future show, we've got a mailbag with your name on it. All you have to do is uh, send it to openline at EWTN.com. 
open line at EWTN.com. Be sure to put Father Milady in the subject line, or you could put Thursday in the subject line, uh, and that will help us get the right questions to the right hosts. But you know what? Lines are open for you if you'd like to call in today. Our number is 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Father Brian Milady. 833-288-3986. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. Stay with us. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Lines are open for you right now. If you have a question for Father Brian Milady, 833-288-EWTN is that number, 833-288-3986. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. Congratulations going out to two more members of the EWTN radio family, longtime members, WSOG, that's in Spring Valley in Normal, Illinois, celebrating 21 years with EWTN. Also, KTDC, that's in Muscatine, Iowa, marking 20 years with us. Congratulations from your friends here at EWTN Radio. Here's a question we received, Father. This is from David. How can I best argue for the real presence when speaking to non-denominational Christians? Well, it's very hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that the easiest way is, well, of course, you can always have reference to the Gospels. Uh-huh. The question will turn on whether Jesus was speaking literally or figuratively when he said, this is my body and this is my blood and do this and remember of me. Because, you know, a lot of people uh, in fundamentalist Christians or Protestant Christians would say, well, he says he's a door, too, but he's not a door. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but the, the whole weight of the Last Supper narrative is not only on the, on the uh, Passover meal, but as Dr. Hahn makes clear in his book on the cup, you know, the fourth, uh, fourth, cup. fourth cup, yeah. Yes, um, it's not just the Passover meal. It's a very unusual Passover meal. For one thing, uh, no women or children are present, and that's not the way they celebrated the Passover. Mm -hmm. And for another thing, um, this uh, uh, narrative is very unusual as to the statement about, I shall not drink the cup again until I do in the kingdom. And... uh, then, as Dr. Hahn maintains, of course, most of his stuff comes from when he was a Protestant asking questions. Mm. But, um, you know, when it's, Christ says it is finished, he could never figure out who, any Protestant uh, professor who could tell him what was finished. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea was that the fourth cup was actually drunk by Christ on the cross. And it's an evident connection between the cross and the Eucharist. Now, as of the change, though, even the people, the disciples had problems with that, if you remember. Mm. And uh, you can explain the fact that we don't think we're eating Christ as a cannibal, but we also don't think it's just a figure of speech, that it's real, but it's not um, molecules and uh, 
so that you would be munching on flesh, you could say. Right. Although Jesus does use very vivid terms about it when he uses the word eat. Mm -hmm. And when the disciples object to this, he makes it even more vivid. <laughs> uh, he doesn't, you know, take it back. Yeah. He makes it even more vivid in his explanation of it. Mm -hmm. But as to, again, it's one of those things that faith alone reveals the mystery. Faith reveals the sacred sign. Okay. Know. Mm -hmm. Very good. And uh, thank you so much, David, for your email. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Daniel in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Daniel. A blessed Advent. What's on your mind today, sir? Yes. Hi. Um, my son, uh, Currently, he's currently away in college. Um, I've asked him if he's been attending Mass. He said no. Um, he's coming back tonight. And he's going to be with us for a month before he starts the spring semester. Um, so, you know, during the time that he's going to be with us, um, I'm going to take him to Mass with me on Sundays. Um, Sundays or Saturdays uh, or vigils uh, mm -hmm. on Saturdays. Mm -hmm. And I just don't know what to tell him. You know, when we go up to receive the Eucharist, I think for him it's just, um, you know, it's just a kind of like a ceremonial thing uh, for him to come up, and I, I, I just don't know, like, what to tell him at that, you know, um, during the time when we, everyone comes up to receive the Eucharist. Okay. All right. Uh, was this person raised a Catholic? He, he was, yes. Okay. Well, my opinion, again, it's just my, all this is a matter of what your prudence is. And different people may have different answers. But my opinion is that you leave it up to him. He's old enough in his conscience to know whether he should or shouldn't go. And, uh, again, I, I think it's, uh, if you try to push him one way or another, you know how young people are. They push back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if you're trying to get him to live his faith, the very chances are it'll be just the opposite effect. Mm -hmm. And really, when a person reaches the age of 18 or 19, you have to let, leave them to make their own mistakes. So, and who knows, in the future, he may come to repent of all the communions he didn't do properly. Yeah. So my, my personal opinion is, if you want to take him to Mass, then that's a great idea. But if he wants to go to communion, that's his business and nobody else's. And the Lord's, of course. All right. Daniel, thanks so much uh, for your call. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. Mm -hmm. Still time for your call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Edith is a first-time caller in a beautiful town. Been there a couple of times. Charleston, Illinois. Listening on YouTube this afternoon. Blessed Advent to you. Edith, what's on your mind today? Edith in Charleston, are you there? Yes. Go right ahead. Hi, I have a question regarding the Bible. Uh -huh. why, why some people leave their Bible open and say they have a certain meaning or close? Does it make a difference, even if it's at home or at the church? Okay. 
Well, again, I'm kind of at sea as to what you're asking me. You mean, is this just for display purposes? Like, That's what I'm wondering, if it's a lot of people that leave it for display, or does it yeah. have a meaning because of the word? No. <laughs> it doesn't really have a meaning. It's what it's a person's preference. Yeah. Maybe, some maybe, yeah, some maybe people that. like to have the Bible open, uh, you know, for display or, or pious rem- remembrances, could be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. There you go, Edith. Thanks so much uh, for your call today. Here is Fernando, a first-time caller from Little Elm, Texas, listening on the great Guadalupe radio. Fernando, what's on your mind today, sir? Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I was wondering, given that God made known to Lucifer that his son was going to become man, and that they were going to have to kneel to God's son as a human being, at what point did God kick out Lucifer and his angels out of heaven? Okay. Well, there is a pious tradition. It's not reflected in the scripture, obviously that when Luther heard about this thing about the Incarnation, uh, that was the thing he found most distasteful, that an angel should possibly be demoted under a man, you know, someone with a human nature. But that's only a pious tradition. That's not the scriptures, the, the way they portray it. And frankly, it seems rather impossible to me, because we don't know about the Incarnation until the sin is committed <laughs> So it's kind of putting the cart before the horse. Yeah. Uh, basically, uh, they, the Adam and Eve were given a command. It was a trivial command, but because of their intense interior formation and grace, and, and they had to show their love even in the smallest thing, and they did that by obedience. Love and obedience went together there. So... They chose, based not on any process of reasoning or anything, because they knew what the truth was, uh-huh. but they had a disordered movement of themselves at the suggestion of Satan that they could endure in the condition which God had made them, being um, uh, in, having the integrity of grace without God's help. In other words, they could do it with their own. Mm-hmm. And as a result, since they didn't need God's help, they didn't have to pray before making this decision. And that showed very little love um, by someone who loved them so much in the creation. Then when they lose grace, that's when in Genesis 3.15, the promise of the Redeemer is made. Mm. Now, I do know, as I say, there is this other tradition. I really don't know what its origin is. It could be a ancient father or something. But generally, it doesn't seem to support what's taught to us in Genesis. Okay. Uh, Fernando, thank you so much for your call today from Little Elm, Texas. What a great name for that community. It's uh, Open Line uh, Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. Uh, last call for your call. We can probably get you on if you call right now at 833-288-EWTN, 
888-288-3986. This weekend on Divine Intimacy Radio, you can join Dan and Stephanie Burke. They will continue talking with Jordan Burke about finding peace in the storm. Don't miss out. They'll be discussing surrendering to the Lord and doing His will. That's a Divine Intimacy Radio coming up Sunday morning, 6.30 a.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. All right, let's go now to uh, Erica, a first-time caller in Fort Worth, listening on the Ave Maria radio app. Erica, what's on your mind today? Yes, hi, I'm calling because I have a 16-year-old son who is very depressed. He is being a counselor and is currently started, he just currently started medication. Uh-huh. But he's very sad. He's um, He has now started to question our faith and does not want to do confirmation. He doesn't try to learn any of his prayers. Um, I just don't know what to do. I'm afraid, you know, that he's just going more under. And I don't know. I don't know. We keep pushing, going to confirmation class and and going to Mass, but he's just, there because he has to be there. Mm. Um, with grades at school, he's also having a hard time. He's not putting any effort in anything at this point. Well, I, I can't counsel you on depression. That's something you need to talk to a psychiatrist or, or counselor about. But what I can say to you is that it seems to me a person who has such depression doesn't really feel like doing anything and uh, that includes their religion so obviously he's young the, the religion hasn't you know uh, entered in that much into his life and so it's jettisoned at the moment um, if he should succeed in being healed from his depression I bet he will start coming back. Mm, yeah. But but as long as he's in the condition of the depression, I mean, if you want to get him to go to be confirmed, that's fine. But um, it, it doesn't mean that he's going to take it seriously until he has some freedom in his inner life from this depression. Mm-hmm. Erica, thanks so much. Uh, we will certainly keep you and your son in our yes. prayers. Yes, for Very sure. Hard it's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. Father, we received this email from John who says, Why is sodomy a sin that, quote, cries out to heaven and not fornication or other sexual sins? Well, the reason sodomy is a sin that cries out to heaven is because there's nothing natural about it at all. Mm. At least in fornication, you have natural sex yeah. with someone of the opposite sex or whatever. But there's no way in, in God's green earth that conception can result from sodomy. And conception is the reason sexuality, one of them, that sexuality primarily exists. So it's because, I, I hate to say this, I know this is a very unpopular position, but it is quite unnatural. Well, there it is. And More so than fornication. Well, sure, sure. Uh, John, thanks so much for your email. Larry says, can you explain Marian consecration, and what are your thoughts on Marian consecration? Oh, uh, well, if you mean Louis Marie de Montfort, 
I don't know a great deal about it. I do know that people who have embraced it have gotten a lot out of it. Uh-huh. Um, but if that's what you mean, uh, you basically consecrate your life to Our Lady. And I don't really know because I've never done it myself. Uh-huh. Nor, nor feel the need to do that particular devotion. Okay. But there's nothing wrong with it. It's been recommended highly by the church. Okay. Appreciate that. Larry, thanks so much for your email. Here's one now from Lee. Very interesting question. Can we know for sure that God answers prayers? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. God answers prayers, but he does it in his way. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, one of the statements in the Catechism, which I think is quite good on this, and it reflects an opinion of St. Augustine's in the letter to Proba, is that the primary answer to all prayer is the transformation of the praying heart. In other words, the very fact that you realize you need God and you express that through your prayers, that's the primary answer to all prayer. So he may not answer your prayer so that you get the answer you want, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean he isn't answering your prayers. Okay. Appreciate that. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. Tony says, what is the culpability of people with addictions that seem compulsive? Well, I've had a lot of thought about this because I teach moral theology. Uh And as you know, there are quite a lot of addictions today. Oh, yeah. But the trouble is that there are help groups, too, like, for example, in Alcoholism AA. Now, if a person is under the influence of alcohol, perhaps they're not culpable for what they do. But if they could avail themselves of a help group to help them and they absolutely refuse, then that crosses into the level of responsibility for whatever results. So the person needs to investigate and to make use of some um, help group that will encourage them in the midst of this addiction to avoid it. And if they're smart, they'll know they need this. Um, so the responsibility would not be in the deed which is done, but it's rather the cause from which it results. Okay. Very good. And uh, thank you for that question. Here's one from Daniel. I don't understand the difference between justification, salvation, and sanctification. How does the church understand these terms? Well, justification and merit are effects of grace. They're results of it. Okay. Sanctification is grace itself. So it's the difference between the being and what's results in the being. And in the case of justification, I I think the best way to put this is, and it's the way St. Thomas basically puts it, that it's God moving the soul and the soul allowing itself to be moved. Mm. In the case of merit, God moves the soul, the soul allows itself to be moved, and then the soul participates in some way in the movement. And both of these are a result of realizing you have a new divine life in you that Hmm. has to have an effect in you. Okay. What about uh, salvation and sanctification? 
Well, salvation, well, I said sanctification was, I said that already. Oh, okay, okay. That it's the it's grace present in your soul, period. I see. Okay. Uh, salvation means that you have to move from a condition of not being sanctified to being sanctified, which means that you have to experience conversion. And the term conversion itself means that you face one way and then you face another. So grace helps to support you in that change from uh, one way to another. And salvation basically consists in despising sin and in desiring to grow in the virtues. Okay. Thank you so much. It is a Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. Mickey wants to know, what is objective morality? And do Catholics, <laughs> and do Catholics truly have it when interpreting the Bible? <laughs> objective morality is that we don't have in our society at all. <laughs> True. Everything's a matter of your feelings. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, objective morality means that what you do in your life has to correspond to your nature, which in turn has to correspond because you have intelligence and a will to loving the goods that are presented to you in their correct order as to how they can fulfill you. Um, what was the second half of the question again? Okay, the question was, uh, do Catholics truly have it, as in oh, objective yeah. morale, when interpreting the Bible? Well, we're supposed to. Uh, unfortunately, today, <laughs> a good number of teachers of Catholic thought don't teach Catholicism. And uh, even in universities and colleges. And once you get away from the objective order, uh -huh. then everything, there's no truth at all. This was, not, this was even reflected in a famous a secular book in the 80s called The Closing of the American Mind. Oh, yeah where Alan Bloom said the difficulty, and we've just seen it in Congress this week, he said the difficulty with the present education system is it doesn't seek truth, period. All it seeks is uh, what a, whatever the culture is presenting as yeah. important now. Okay. That's all. Yeah. Okay. Very good. And as uh, Open Line Thursday continues here on EWTN, this question from Zach is it true that we have a reasonable hope that all men are saved? Uh, yes, but they won't be. <laughs> okay, all right. We, we can reasonably hope because we have the means yeah. of that salvation, yeah. the primary one of which is the cross. But also we have free will. And so there are some that no matter what God does, they will not avail themselves of the cross. Now, they could be a very small number. As you know, in the scriptures, it's stated that many are called, but few are chosen. Mm -hmm. And people think, oh, well, that must mean there's very few that are saved. No, that's a Semiticism. It's the way the, G the Hebrews and the Semitics used to express degrees. So what the text actually means in English is many are called, but less are chosen. I see. It could be one person less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the point is, because you have free will, God doesn't want slaves. He wants sons and daughters. Sure. And so because of that, he allows us the ability to be a part of our own salvation by choice. 
Well, most people would want to choose, but some people may not. Mm -hmm. And as a result, uh, they would not participate in objective morality. And then objective morality comes back on them with a vengeance. Sure does. And so after death, what happens is nature and freedom disagree. Mm -hmm. And the eternal disagreement of nature and freedom is what we call hell. Mm, I see. Zach, thanks so much for your question. Here's one from James. I had someone tell me that religion cannot help a person go to heaven. How can I respond to this? Well, I wonder why they said that. Yeah, really? Most Protestants distinguish between what they call faith and what they call religion. Uh huh. And by religion, they mean going to church or the sacraments or works of salvation. Mm -hmm. Of course, they can help you go to heaven. Sure. I don't know who said that, but whoever did is obviously is a Catholic. <laughs> yeah. And this one then from uh, Belinda. How can Mary be without sin and have free will? Well, because God bridled her free will. Um, at a certain point along the line, he so supported her by love that she couldn't possibly um, turn away. However, your question is an important one because it's one of the reasons why the Immaculate Conception was held to be a difficult doctrine. Mm. As you know, St. Thomas argued against it. Um, in the Middle Ages, because it hadn't been defined yet. Uh -huh. Because Mary is all very fittingly, you know, you're all beautiful, oh Mary, and original sin doesn't take effect in you. Toto pulcher es Maria. But by the same token, Mary has to be among the redeemed. Mm -hmm. So Scotus gave the solution. She's redeemed in advance in the special gift of God because of her participation in the passion of Christ through her right. body. Belinda, thanks so much for your question. Father Brian, could you please uh, leave us with your blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Father Brian Milady, reminding you that this time tomorrow it's going to be Open Line Friday with your Friday host, Colin Donovan, answering all things uh, theological, so be sure to be with us for that. I will see you uh, tomorrow, hopefully, on Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. Until then, have a wonderful evening. Stay calm during Advent. Not much time left. Have a great day, and God bless.